Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 6th. I'm Anastasia Glova. In today's podcast, Brink Lindsay and I cover Benjamin Barber's new book, Consumed How Markets Corrupt Children, Infantilize Adults, and Swallow Citizens Whole. Brink is Cato's vice president for research and author of the upcoming book, The Age of Abundance. How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture. Brink's review of Barber's book on consumer culture appeared in the April 3rd issue of the Wall Street Journal, but the pith of his remarks is all here in this podcast. What's Professor Benjamin Barber so peeved about in his new book? Well, you can tell that he's in a testy mood from the book's title, Consumed, How Markets Corrupt Children, Infantilize Adults, and Swallow Citizens Whole. What Benjamin Barber is doing is following in a long tradition of leftist intellectuals railing against the evils of consumerism and particularly the evils of excessive materialism. We have this amazing abundance of consumer riches and consumer choices, and the response that Barber makes and many intellectuals before him have made is that this material abundance really masks a kind of spiritual poverty, that obsessing over stuff and things is a paltry and shallow way to spend your life and that we ought to be devoting ourselves to more profound pursuits than just money-grubbing. And further, uh, that what looks like this proliferation of choices, you have umpteen thousand different products in the typical grocery store these days, what looks like this proliferation of choices is in fact a subtle kind of tyranny, that the consumerist capitalist system is a kind of trap that brainwashes people through incessant drubbing of commercials to become materialists and to spend their life in the rat race striving to get more stuff and that people are being programmed to value things that really they ought not to value. And so it's really a kind of attempt to see through the obvious benefits of capitalism, a plenty and choice, and say the plenty is really not the kind of plenty we ought to be worrying about. We ought to be worrying about spiritual plenty, and the choice is not the right kind of choice. Instead of choice about consumer items, we ought to be choosing for ourselves a more authentic lifestyle. Throughout this book, he's very, very critical of consumerist youth culture, but it sounds to me like more of just an aesthetic argument, or does he cite any specific examples of how materialism has actually eroded quality of life, or is this just his preferences in a book? I think a lot of his critique boils down to a revulsion that more people don't share his middle-aged college professors' tastes, and he imputes to the capitalist system the tastes of consumers that capitalism caters to. So I think he gets a number of things wrong. First, he obsesses about the sizzle and forgets the steak. So he's obsessed about this, all of this advertising and vulgarity and kind of stupidity and banality of commercial society. And he forgets the fact that the rise of consumerism is associated with and intimately connected to the greatest increase in human well-being in human history, that the societies today where people live the longest, live the healthiest lives, have the most comforts and conveniences, are best educated and live with the sort of broadest life horizons, those are the places where consumerism is most firmly planted. And furthermore, it's not just a coincidence that consumerism, I think, is more or less a necessary adjunct of capitalist prosperity. As we get beyond supplying merely people's basic survival needs, the minimum food, shelter, and clothing people need to get by, 
then we move into the world of choice and discretion. And today, the bare requirements of survival can be bought with really just a tiny fraction of people's income. And everything above that is up for grabs. It's choice. So suppliers trying to get people to buy their wares must persuade them to expend their discretionary income this way rather than that way. How do you persuade? You persuade through advertising. Meanwhile, in our culture today, not everyone has the tastes of a college professor. Some people like popular culture that's uh, less sophisticated and less demanding intellectually than Benjamin Barber might prefer. But the market is going to supply what people want. Furthermore, the fact is that the kind of prized demographic of advertisers is young people. And for the simple reason, they have a lot of discretionary income. They don't have a lot of their income tied down in mortgages or monthly bills. Everything that they spend, they spend discretionarily. Secondly, they don't have the settled brand loyalties of older people. And so they're much more volatile, which means their dollars are up for grabs. So advertising is focused on them. And that's why the 18 to 34 demographic is the prized demographic of TV advertisers. You might regret if you're a middle-aged intellectual that this is the target demographic, but that's the way life is right now. Perhaps things will change over time as people grow ever more educated and ever more prosperous. But really, I think that Barber's beef boils down to he doesn't share the tastes of the typical Americans that drive popular culture. He rails against advertisers while completely ignoring the long-tail argument that's made it so much more difficult for advertisers to get consumers to buy their products because consumers themselves are creating their own supply and their own demand. Again, this idea that consumerism is a kind of tyranny or a trap or a brainwashing scheme goes back to this idea that we are all programmable and that if the advertisers tell us to want something or buy brand X, we'll just rush out there dutifully and do so. That was never true. Even in the days of John Kenneth Galbraith, when he was making the similar kind of argument, it was transparently not true. But today, it's just obviously not true that we have such an amazing proliferation of choices and new technologies, especially the internet, have made it so much easier for sellers and buyers to find each other, even if uh, we're talking about very niche markets, that the idea that producers can force people to value this versus that is just, I think, clearly not true. He suffers from a a basic confusion, which is to see all this stuff, to see all this material abundance, and assume that this is what everyone is obsessing about, that because there is material plenty, that everyone must be materialistic. But that isn't necessarily the case at all. If your entire view of what it means to be an American alive in 2007 is based on watching reality TV and commercials, then you may have a very low view of what American life is like. But the fact is that the vast majority of our lives aren't spent watching the tube and thinking about stuff. We spend a lot of our time trying to be productive and successful in our work lives and work well and cooperate for mutual gain with our colleagues. We spend a lot of time with our family and our loved ones, uh, sharing our lives together and raising our children. We spend a lot of time with friends, having fun and having interactions. All of these human things are apart from this consumerist kind of nexus. So Barber assumes there's a kind of almost totalitarian aspect to commercialism that just doesn't have anything to do with the way reality is. Secondly, the fact is that the richer we get, the more affluent we get, the more stuff we have, the less materialistic we become. People are much more obsessed with acquiring things when they have very, very few of them. This is the law of diminishing returns, that the more stuff you have, then to get 
one more increment of stuff is not as valuable as the first increment. So we see this panning out not only in the United States but around the world. In the review I did of Barber's book, I alluded to the work of University of Michigan political scientist Ronald Engelhart, who has exhaustively done attitude surveys of people since the early 1970s, I believe, and showing a clear trend over time towards what he calls post-materialist values. That is, as people get more and more comfortable and there's more and more of a cushion between them and real material want, they start shifting their attention and their priorities in life away from just stockpiling things, instead focusing on quality of life, meaning of life, doing meaningful work rather than simply well-paying work, having interesting experiences rather than just filling your house full of stuff, and in particular, fulfilling your potential, achieving self-realization rather than simply working hard and building up a big bank account. So the richer we are, and it's quite logical, as I said, because of the law of diminishing returns, the richer we are, the less materialistic we become. And I think that is quite clearly evident in the social science literature, and it's a point and a fundamental point that Barbara misses. How does your upcoming book, The Age of Abundance, fit into this? Well, it is telling exactly this point that I was just making. The book is an examination of American history since World War II, and in particular how mass prosperity, mass affluence has affected huge changes in cultural values, shifting people away from the attitudes that are understandable in a time of scarcity and in a time of trying to overcome scarcity and build up economic growth and away and towards a culture now where everyone is relatively comfortable and we're much more focused on quality of life and self-realization. And my book details that cultural shift and then explores its cultural and political consequences. This has been the Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.